When you have a really good vision that is for the betterment of society and business aligns with it, then that's very powerful. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Craig Robbins, a developer whose work focuses on arts, culture, and the role of historic preservation. Craig joins us today to discuss his work in curating neighborhoods. Craig, welcome. Thank you. You've been, over the course of the last uh, decade or two, building a a district on the the near north side of Miami called the Design District. Uh, Tell us about your work there. The Miami Design District is just really exciting. It's a, a neighborhood that embodies support and advocacy for culture through art, architecture, design, also music. And it's become a great commercial place. We've now completed a lot of the the retail component and a lot of the cultural pieces. It's almost like an outdoor museum for art, architecture, and design. And we're thinking about adding other uses, residential, hotel, and office. So it's just going to become a complete mixed-use neighborhood. So you began, as I understand, working now almost two decades ago there, acquiring land. And So why the design district as a formulation? Well, as I started in my business, it, I, I was in law school at the University of Miami, and I had the good fortune to acquire a couple buildings in South Beach. And I learned about urban revitalization and neighborhood building. And through that process, I kept expanding in Miami Beach. And once you got up to Lincoln Road in Miami Beach, there was really no place to go other than over the bridge. And a few islands along the way, I understand. Yeah, a few wonderful islands along the way. So you mentioned, Craig, you were, you know, one of a handful of people very early days in the 1980s, um, betting on South Beach, to put it that way. You know, for our audience that haven't experienced it, like, what was the environment in the mid-80s? Miami Beach was really a hot tourist destination in the 60s and 70s. It even goes before that. But by the mid-70s and certainly the early 80s, all of Miami had been pretty much in a decline. And Miami Beach had become sort of a relic. There, there wasn't much happening. So in 1987, I was looking for a place where I could bring artists. I was looking for an art studio. And through a friend of my father's, I had the good fortune to meet someone who became like a mentor to me, a, a man named Tony Goldman. And Tony had a few months earlier acquired some buildings in South Beach. It was south of Fifth Street, sort of a, a slum and blight area. A lot of the Mariel refugees had come there and the city had prohibited any development because they wanted to allow redevelopment. So it became problematic. And north of Fifth Street, it was a dwindling retirement village. It was elderly Jewish population that had immigrated from Europe after World War II, first generation people working in factories. And so they were living in South Beach on social security, living in those little Art Deco hotels. And they were dying off. There wasn't really a generation to replace them because their kids had become doctors and lawyers and were more successful in living in other parts of Miami or other parts of the country. So it's a, it's a really ironic thing that can happen sometimes. The first developed land in Miami was now sort of the worst um, because new things were happening further and further away from the center and everybody had disregarded like the most central land on the beachfront with 
unbelievably the largest collection of Art Deco and Mediterranean Revival architecture in the world in one place. So would it be fair to say that the development community broadly, uh, the leadership of the field at that point, didn't see the opportunity in South Beach that you did at that moment? Not at all. The um, conventional wisdom in Miami was that South Beach needed to be demolished and something new needed to be built there. Most people thought it would never work. And there were a group, three groups really of advocates for that area. Probably most importantly was the uh, preservation movement. There was also a group of people who were affiliated with them that were in favor of economic development, Miami Beach Development Corporation, it was called. And then there were a handful of developers, uh, Tony Goldman, who I mentioned, uh, Mel Schlesser, Saul Gross, Dennis Scholl, and myself. And we were the only ones that were interested. Dennis and I were from Miami, not big players in real estate by any means. And, um, and the other three were from New York. What was it in that experience that allowed you and your colleagues to see the the architectural potential of the place? I mean, given the history of preservation and development culture in other American cities, it's an extraordinary story here, no? That you have this curious, to my eye, alliance between advocates of preservation on the one hand and people that are interested in developing the future of the city. Well, what's amazing about South Beach is that we joined forces. It wasn't preservationists against developers. We united and advocated together for the passage of legislation that protected the historical buildings. My own experience was um, I met Tony for a very small sum of money. He sold me half of two buildings that he had acquired. And then I had to figure out how to fix them up and turn them into income producing properties. The largest retail tenant around those buildings at the time was the guy who would collect the cans from the homeless people. That was the one flourishing business in uh, that area right on Fifth Street and Washington Avenue and Fifth Street and Ocean Drive. But miraculously, I began to fix up the building. I also got my art studio, so I was able to bring artists to come and paint. And the first retail tenant I had was Keith Haring. He built a variation of the pop shop. And that, for me, was a really early moment where I felt the energy of what you can do in a neighborhood and how by collaborating with visionary, creative people, you can make an impact. So from the very beginning, Craig, of, the, of your work as a developer, the notion of uh, the arts, creativity, culture as a kind of tendency, as a kind of community in the idea of rebuilding places? I think one of the more important influence on, on me as a, a young developer was probably uh, DPZ, Liz Platter-Zyberk and Andreas Duwani because they were advocates for new urbanism and, and having a great historical neighborhood and figuring out how to reposition it versus building a golf course and putting a bunch of houses around it, that was incredibly impactful. You know, the, the legacy of Miami was, uh, in this generation, was the beginning of Architectonica, which a lot of people don't realize was a partnership between Andreas and Liz and Bernardo and Lorinda. And Bernardo and Lorinda went on to be more traditional but amazing architects. And Liz and Andres, you know, founded the New Urbanist Movement and both had an influence. The next thing that happened was I had the, the second, really the third mentor in my life, because the first is my dad. My dad's been amazing and 
really taught me a lot about business. But then I met a man named Chris Blackwell and collaborated with him for quite a while. Chris was the founder of Island Records. He was a filmmaker. And what Chris taught me was how to produce creativity in real estate. His approach was totally different. We did this building called the Marlin Hotel. It was a 12-room hotel with a recording studio, of course, and a Jamaican restaurant. Chris was Jamaican. At the time, South Beach was all these senior citizens that I'm talking about, but also model agencies. So, of course, we had a great model agency in the building, and Chris built his apartment. Mine was next door. And when the Marlin Hotel opened, that was like, that was just an amazing moment in in my career and also for, for South Beach. So the biggest rock band in the world was U2, and they came to the opening of our 12-room hotel. Uh, the biggest celebrities in the world at that time were the top models, and Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, and Kate Moss also came. And so it was a big international moment for South Beach, and it put it on the map in a different kind of way, the kind of way that only someone like Chris Blackwell could do. And I think I was like 25 years old at the time, <laughs> and I thought I was really cool. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say, I mean, given given what we've said about the dark arts of development and its state in, in Miami, you've gone a long way in the course of your career to, to make it a more exciting, interesting line of work for people now. I mean, obviously, of course, you're reflecting on the the relationship you had with your father and with your mentors, but you also saw opportunities that not everyone else saw. So I'm interested in the building fabric itself. So you, you had this experience in Barcelona, you studied there for some time, and you see something in the deco buildings. Would you say that there's something about the nature of those buildings, their configuration, their geometry, their materiality? Is it something in their architecture or was it simply their relationship to the beach? Like, is there a way to find in the DNA of that architecture something that allowed it to be developable? Something that's truly historical, by definition, is irreplaceable. And what we had that was really special was we had this amazing collection. Some of the buildings are nicer than others. Is any one of them the most important, iconic example of Art Deco architecture in the world? I don't think so. But um, the idea of having this collection really impacted me. And I have to say, at first, I was not as convinced. I, I was definitely an advocate for historic preservation. But there was this group called Art Deco Hotels that had acquired 10 or 15 of the most important buildings. And they wanted to develop them and they needed a parking lot because there was no parking in South Beach. And so they wanted to tear down the Senator Hotel. And I was thinking like these preservationists are out of control. They're not being realistic. And it was this whole saga where Barbara Kapitman was standing in front of the building and she had to be removed. She was the, the sort of figurehead of the preservation movement. And when the Senator Hotel came down, I realized that I would never support the demolition of another Art Deco building. It transformed me. So in a way, um, my own error in judgment became something that I you could say, repented from. But it gave me a clear vision, like this is wrong. You can never replace them and you can't invent these ideas that there's some short-term business interest that needs to lead to that because the Senator was really a, a brilliant building. You know, it was, a, it was one of the more important and iconic and beautiful Art Deco buildings and it was gone forever and we got a parking lot. And was that realization an immediate epiphany? As soon as the building went down, I thought, 
oh my God, I was wrong. This was wrong. And it made me a much stronger advocate than I probably would have ever been for historic preservation. What really saved South Beach was the advocacy of people like Barbara Kapitman and a group of people that were the preservation movement, the people from MBDC, but also that there was a business interest that was aligned with it. Then you don't have that conflict. When you have a really good vision that is for the betterment of society and business aligns with it, then that's very powerful. It took some time, but the driver, in my opinion, of most of the things that really then happened in South Florida and this reemergence of South Florida was, was South Beach. It put it on the map. When we opened the Marlin Hotel, and I'm dating myself, this was at a time where magazines were like the power structure of thought in a way. You know, the, that, that's how ideas were communicated and advocated. And the two most powerful travel magazines in the world were Travel and Leisure and Traveler Condé Nast. The Marlin is the only hotel ever that was on the cover of both magazines in the same month. Somehow here on the beach, you and your colleagues found this alliance between preservation, arts and culture and development that somehow has, you know, after the success of South Beach, been generalized elsewhere. And in many cases, that history has been received in New York or in the Bay Area as a success, right? But it strikes me from what you've said in my own experience of it that it had really a lot to do with the media. It had a lot to do with playing, you know, an outside game, whether it's through advertisements. Uh, I remember the TV commercials. And, and this was also at a moment when music video was kind of bubbling up. And, and so it was from the outside consuming media. You couldn't escape South Beach. I don't know what it was like on the ground at that point. It was, it was media, but there was also another factor that's very important. And that is that we demonstrated that the economics were actually superior by preserving these buildings and tearing them down. And so you had two things that combined. You had a business model that actually worked. There was no sacrifice to business in exchange for doing public good. You actually could make more money. And that shaped my thinking so much about development because essentially I've dedicated myself to neighborhoods. And the difference between the neighborhood developer and the developer of a piece of land is if you buy a piece of land somewhere, you're thinking about how you can make the most profit off of that land. But if you own in the same neighborhood 30 pieces of land, when you're figuring out what to do on that land, it should be profitable, but it also has the potential to make all other 30 sites worth more. And so your, your profitability goes up. You know, if um, I'm building a 30,000 square foot building and I can make $100 a foot of profit, that's great. But then if I own another million square feet and I could increase the value of those properties by $10 a foot, that's a huge bonus. And so it's a different way of thinking. You know, I always think that whatever we're doing has to help make the neighborhood better, be profitable but make the rest of the neighborhood worth more. Given the number of the parcelization, the history, the number of players, the number of development interests on the beach, did it take some time for the development community, your, your colleagues or your competitors, let's say, to see that shared value? There were the small group that were advocating for it. And then everybody else thought we were nuts. But they left us alone. They let us do what we were doing. It wasn't worth the fight. They didn't have an interest there. It wasn't like they wanted to tear down five blocks and build a high rise. 
And there were areas where you could do that. Andre Stwani, I remember, this is a long time ago, but he was speaking somewhere and he said, it's very important for cities to have areas where bad things can happen because, and he meant bad development things. He wasn't talking about crime. So that you allow all those people to go to their area and do those things. And then they'll leave the other areas alone. And there were plenty of opportunities in Miami Beach and in the rest of Miami. And I wouldn't describe them as bad things, but where you could build these, you know, unremarkable high rises that you see south of Fifth Street, which by the way, is a huge driver to making South Beach work because you've got this beautiful Art Deco district and you can house a lot of people and beautiful condominiums and then they can walk to South Beach and I don't look at it as a bad thing. I look at it as a different thing. So yeah, in in the future of the American city, we you know we spoke with with Liz. We, we were talking with uh, Lauren Despier, and of course the the DPZ architectonic story is a fascinating one. You know, I mean, as a student of architecture in the '80s, you you couldn't escape the Atlantis building again, a building that was as mediated as any. You know, for all of the you know lived experience of that building, of course, it was on every magazine cover. It was in the kind of intro to Miami Vice. It was everywhere. And the idea that you could do that, you could build a kind of city, you could build that kind of work through um, through a form of commercial development is another thing to say. And that legacy is incredible for Miami. You go to the Art Deco period and look at what happened. And then Morris Lapidus and the Fountain Blue era. And then the Architectonica era and those buildings on Brickell Avenue and the creation of DPZ. Miami has actually a bigger contribution than is recognized. And uh, what's really exciting is being part of Miami now and carrying that forward and being, you know, getting to participate in little ways of being a spoke in that wheel. Mm. Well, it's, I mean, you can see the, the, this generation, yourself included, and the colleagues that you've mentioned, who really, like, you can't write the history of, you know, recent urbanism without, whether it's, you know, the new urbanism and the idea of walkability and the idea of compactness and the idea of a kind of concentration, a kind of propinquity relationship between things on the one hand that you found in the beach by virtue of its geographic constraint and its architectural neglect, but also the idea that one could make a future city that was kind of fashion forward, progressive even, at a moment when that fell out of favor in other parts of the country. Well, one of the things I learned in South Beach was while we were by far the largest property holder in the Art Deco district, we still owned a small percentage of it. And so our ability to really influence it was less complete. And people that wanted to do more commercial things than we would have we would have wanted to do, they had a bigger say in it. And that's part of what really inspired me to work in the design district because it too was a historical neighborhood, not as benefited and as encumbered with historical buildings as South Beach. There's some great historical buildings there, but there was a bigger opportunity for new architecture. And it was small enough where we could have a much bigger stake. So we own 70% of the privately held property in the design district. And that is really exciting because we're, we, we've been able to be a bigger driver in the direction of that neighborhood and less impaired by different visions. Uh, and so it gave me the opportunity to kind of do what I had been doing in South Beach, but in a more comprehensive way and also in a more contemporary way. And it's nice to, to have that opportunity too. We did do some contemporary buildings in South Beach, but the opportunities were 
much more limited because it is an incredible historical district, which I wouldn't change. It strikes me that um, uh, beginning in the beach uh, and then in the design district, the idea of um, curating an urban environment might be a way to describe your activities because you're from the very beginning bringing in artists interested in culture, working a little bit like a music producer, not simply interested in the sausage making of development, uh, but at the same moment, thinking about the mixity and the relationship between things. So in formulating the design district, why the near north side of Miami? Like why that neighborhood? So first of all, geographically, if you look at it, um, once you get up to Lincoln Road in Miami Beach, there's no place else to go. I mean, there's a one street, Collins Avenue, that goes north and everything else is essentially residential. There's little pockets of commercial. So the next logical place to carry this movement, because I really thought it was a movement, was across the bridge geographically. And it was this amazing, contained, historical neighborhood in Miami. It was also like South Beach, super central. But the great thing about the design district was it became this opportunity to first honor what it was, a place that had a lot of furniture showrooms. And by engaging and bringing back life to the neighborhood with furniture showrooms, it brought me to Salone. And if you go, you know, back in time to 1997, there was no such thing in the world as Art Basel. And of course, the Basel Fair existed, but what we think of as Art Basel today didn't exist. A global cultural happening where an entire city is celebrating culture. The only place that I had ever seen that actually did that was Milano during Salone. Because what happened was all of Milan was celebrating design. You could go to the fair, but... What was the thing was that there were exhibitions and parties and everybody that week was celebrating design. And that had a big impact on me and my thinking. So a couple years after that, when Sam Keller, the then director of Art Basel, started to talk to me about bringing Art Basel to Miami, I was very excited about it. I knew that it could be a big thing for Miami. But I also knew that if we could convince them to make it like Salone, that that would be an even bigger thing. And I'm really proud of the fact that our city, Miami, was the place that really took the furniture industry model in Salone, but turned it into this global cultural happening that you now see in cities. You see it in London and New York and Basel has changed. And I feel like not me, but our community, we invented that, you know, and we took an existing idea and transformed it into something that's amazing, that's had a big impact on the world. Were there any challenges around the, the geography of the city? Was the city prepared to receive something like uh, Art Basel? I don't know if point? we're prepared now. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a crazy thing where there's a lot more traffic, a lot more people. It's a great event. But what it did was... It gave us the ability to really showcase the design district as a place for culture. And when people don't really remember this, but when Art Basel first came to Miami, because we had been so helpful in procuring it, we had such a strong relationship, we had an exclusive agreement with Art Basel that they would also only promote cultural events in the design district. So the marketing power of Art Basel was actually advocating for the design district. And then 
Sam Keller came to me in 2005 and said, why don't you do a design show in the design district? And there was really no collecting show in the world that was advocating contemporary limited edition design and the historical kind of mid-century material. And so I thought Sam's idea was brilliant. And right in the heart of the design district, we, we launched Design Miami in 2005, which is another like thing that I just love that the first major design show, arguably the most important collecting design show in the world, it's branded Miami. It was born in Miami because everybody thinks of Miami and I did too. And South Beach is like fun in the sun and a place to go and party and beautiful models and famous people. And, and that's good. I'm not complaining about it. But, you know, Art Basel really gave us this brand in Miami of being a global city of cultural substance. And the design district is central in that. And Design Miami, it's not Art Basel, it's Design Miami. I think your assessment is completely accurate in my experience. I mean, where else can you go over the course of a week in the United States and find a collection at that level of um, design attention, both contemporary, but also of some history? That combination is extraordinary in Design Miami. And so in a way, it comes out of the experience of the design district uh, a little bit after the formation of of the land itself. So I'm interested in your role um, in the design district in Collecting architects, for lack of a better formulation. You've now become among the most important people in North America in the curation of a group of emerging uh, younger design talent. Well, one of the things that I learned from Andreas and Liz is that if you have the right urban design, then the architecture will be somewhere between contributory and incredible. If you don't have the right urban design, it could end up being a mess. You know, like, and so unlike most people, we really focus first on master planning and urban design and what we want to achieve. And that gives us this platform. And then within that platform, my theory about architecture is I always want to find the best creative person I can who will be inspired by the project. So it's not just a question of talent, but it's also a question of talent that will be inspired. And of course, with the kind of projects that we're doing, that tends to be younger people, mid-career people. And so I just like to work with artists, designers, architects, and offer them opportunities that I think will get the best out of them at that point in their career. And we've collaborated very closely with an affiliate of LVMH in the design district called L Real Estate. They've been our equal partner. And it's been a great process of brainstorming and looking at architects. They would come up with some, we would come up with others. We'd all like argue about it in a, in a family sense and, and reach a consensus. And I love what we've done so far with architecture, but it all started with a master plan. Well, I mean, this is, again, one of the strengths of your collaboration with DPZ and a part of their legacy is the idea that, in fact, having a a spatial plan, first of all, and then curating urban experience within that uh, is this incredible multidisciplinary work. It's not simply about the built environment. It's not simply about planning, per se, but ultimately curating the venues, the restaurants, the shops, the mix of cultural and, and the, the, the range of um, public programming. You've, I know you've been doing quite well, a lot that, of work. That's the next piece because 
you know, we're really talking about the physical plant, but then you need the content. And content is, is complex. We unusually invest probably 50% of our resources in culture, sometimes more. And, you know, there's lots of manifestations of that now. You've got the Dela Cruz collection is in the design district. Next to it, you've got the Institute of Contemporary Art now. The whole neighborhood is like a museum. I mean, you can see Buckminster Fuller's Fly's Eye Dome or a mural by John Baldessari or a bus stop by Urs Fisher. I mean, and then I think an element of events, things that other people do and things that we'll advocate. Art Basel is the big one, but we do a beautiful concert series with Emilio Estefan. All of it are like little ingredients that make a neighborhood a place. And then when you throw in these global flagships by creative companies, whether it's fashion or luxury or design, uh, amazing restaurants, like the restaurants that are opening there, it just becomes like a vital place where people want to go. And one of the characteristics I, I've experienced in the district is um, it doesn't feel like just a destination, if I could put it that way. And then maybe this also comes from your experience on the beach, but certainly it's not as though I'm simply meant to be there as a consumer. Like that's available, but there is a, I don't know precisely the language to use. There's a kind of American informality, maybe. There's something about the history of the fabric. You can park on the street. There are people that still live there. That It's, it's still, a neighborhood. It's a neighborhood. That's the word that right. I'm looking it's for. It's so funny. The, the most simple <laughs> word is like, it, but making a neighborhood or revitalizing a neighborhood, it is transcendent. You know, like we don't, we don't necessarily value it as our first thought when we think about real estate. And that is why urban design is so important. That really is the reason why you start there and build from there as opposed to an architectural design on a piece of land. So we know that, um, you know, Miami, by virtue of your good works and the work of many other people, is really at the center of attention for urbanists around the world for the reasons that we've been discussing. And in, in your work in neighborhood building here and the work of others, clearly Miami has this incredible prosperity the last decade or more. It's the, the place that everyone wants to move to. It's under incredible, in some ways, pressure. And so I want to talk a little bit about the challenges that you see ahead. I mean, from my point of view, among a range of other cities, it's perhaps at the crossroads of these pressures. On the one hand, the desire for development and growth People around the world want to move here and live here and experience this place. And then there's ongoing, you know, concern around the, the difference between the, the haves and the have-nots and the economic inequity and the combination of affordability of housing and mobility costs here make it uh, very tough, especially for the, for the working class. Um, how do you as a neighborhood builder uh, think about those challenges? I think that's the most important thing. And, you know, I have always had a vision about it which I haven't really dedicated my business career to because there's so much government entanglement in it. And we've really stayed more, much more on the private side. I mean, we work well with the city on, the, you know, getting them to support our zoning and letting us pay for our streets. But we, we haven't had huge interaction doing public-private projects. Um, we've done some. I think that, first of all, the biggest mistake about affordable housing is that it's not an ownership program. Most of it is rental. And I think that's bad. I think that if you give people ownership of something, their own feelings towards where they live is different and it produces different results. I also think that it gives them a chance to have equity. If you really want to help them, 
part of it is to give them equity. You need to balance it. Like they can't go and sell it at fair market value in a year where you create a speculative thing. But the fact that someone may own an affordable house for 15 years or 20 years, and then they can sell it at fair market value, I think that's a good thing. And so that's a big problem in our system. And the second thing is that we always tend to do those projects in the bad neighborhoods, which isn't going to help those people as much as if they were in a neighborhood that was going up. First, just the economic benefits that they would get, but then you have people that are sharing communities and are integrated. And and so I think that they should be more in the neighborhoods that are clearly in transition. Because if you create the affordable housing in the neighborhoods that are in transition and you give the people that need it ownership, that that's what would be transformative. In your experience, do you think that the, you know, the American experience of single family home ownership, you know, uh, my parents' experience of having a, you know, post-war, a a small suburban home and owning it over 30 years and benefiting from that economically. Do you believe that the the format of the single family house is, is itself problematic in a city like Miami? Well, not in certain parts, but it doesn't make sense in the heart of Miami. No, what we need to do is take these areas and create a vehicle where people, where affordable housing will also get built in the center where a good group of people would like to live so they don't have to drive for an hour to work and be stuck on the expressway or take a train eventually and live in these areas. And it's actually easier to do than people realize that the inertia is about, in my opinion, the lack of vision and the political process. You know, we have an area in Miami Partially, it's referred to as Overtown. Why not develop zoning in that area, which inspires developers to build whatever they want with a certain percentage of it to be for ownership, affordable housing, create a financing system so that there's very low interest loans that are available for the low and moderate income population that will take that housing and make it so it would work. I mean, next to Jackson, do you know how many people work in that place and have to commute there and could be living two or three blocks away and walking to work. It's just absurd to me that we're not doing that. Now, I know it's easy for me to sit here and advocate for all this stuff because we have a system that's unenlightened and we need to move towards one that's enlightened. Every time I've ever seen an affordable housing project where the people own their units, it's been cleaner, nicer. They take care of it more. They take pride in it. They don't want a criminal living in there. It's theirs. They don't want their neighborhood to go down. It's like they're stakeholders. And to make someone just because they're not qualified to buy a middle-income home disenfranchised from becoming a stakeholder in a neighborhood is a huge mistake that we make over and over again in the United States. It's well put. I mean, it corroborates my my reading into the history of um, public housing in America. I edited a book on uh, Lafayette Park, one of the publicly subsidized uh, housing developments in Detroit. And the evidence there was quite clear. On the one hand, the mix of tenancy, if you have people who own and some people who rent at market rates and some people who are there on public subsidy, that mixity pertains to this day after decades and decades. Um, And then the other thing that this corroborates for me is that in the history of U.S. public housing, as long as one could be in publicly subsidized housing and be working poor, this was quite successful. All the literature suggests this, but it was precisely when public housing projects, and I'm thinking more of the industrial Midwest, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, 
when these places made it impossible for people that were really working class to live there. And so, again, it's the, it's the mixity of incomes, it's the mixity of class, the mixity of races, frankly, we see in, in that literature that you're also suggesting. Every, every business in Miami has someone who's doing the cleaning, someone who's doing the, the most simple physical work, someone who is an assistant, and they have executives. They should all live or have the option to live in proximity to that business. And then I really, really think it's also important that if they can sustain that and make that happen for 15 years, 20 years, whatever the the benchmark is, that then they can sell it at fair market value and they can have part of this American dream. And, you know, they can have a retirement fund that goes beyond social security because basically for, for people who are middle-class and below, it's equity in your home it's a pension, and it's social security. That's your future. And we deny with the way we allocate resources into into public housing, we deny the third uh, component. And a lot of those people don't get the second. They're not getting pensions because they're not in those kind of jobs or they're not meaningful pensions. And so, see, what drives me crazy is it's only two things you need to change. The method of financing, because we are subsidizing these rental buildings, turn it into very low interest, long-term mortgages. So it becomes affordable. And, and the second thing is like zoning, you know? So, all right, tell the developer he can get 150% of his current zoning rights if 20% of it is affordable housing. And when you couple that with these lower interest mortgages, then it's a business opportunity. Turn it into a business opportunity for the developers where they can, they can make a reasonable profit. They're incentivized to do it, and it happens. It's an inspiring vision, Craig. You also, I mean, with your record of um, reaching across the aisle, working with even preservationists, I can imagine that you'll have as good a chance as anyone in, in the city of, of accomplishing this. The neighborhoods you're mentioning are also the neighborhoods in the city that have access to transportation, right? I mean, they're served by the highways. They're served by the metro rail. They're served by, by the trolley. Are you optimistic that there might be a generational change coming in in habits of mobility or transportation? I mean, there's some evidence. We talk with some people here who think as kids uh, move to town, they want a different kind of life, maybe a more urban life, uh, setting aside a conversation of scooters for another day. What are your thoughts about that mobility pattern for the next generation? I mean, it's, look, the the world's going to change and anybody who doesn't realize it is living in their own dream of the past. The thought that in 20 years, anybody's going to be driving a car the way we think of it today is impossible. Just from a safety point of view, once machines can actually do the driving, there'll be no more traffic accidents. So there'll be traffic accidents, but they'll go down by 99%. Once you get to that, most transportation, I think, is going to become quasi-public anyway. And so I think the world's going to go that way. No doubt. Given the prominence that um, automobile culture, uh, parking, the parking garage has played in Miami's history. I mean, it's one of the more notable building types in this city over the past several decades. Are you thinking about that building changing over this medium term? I mean, as, as things change around mobility? I mean, we already need less parking, by the way. I don't know if it's true, but I heard Joe Stone Crabs parks 40% less people in valet now than they did five years ago. I know that my wife, who's was affiliated with the Found Blue Hotel, like valet parking is way down. It's not because people are self-parking. <laughs> it's because it's they're not driving. Um, 
I mean, now there's just so many opportunities to be able to move around and only one of them is driving your own car. And so I think, you know, it's, it's changing pretty quickly. And I think less parking is needed now. In the design district, we were panicked about having enough parking because if you look at the normal metrics, we're experiencing 50% growth in parked cars in the design district every month, year on year. It's a 50% annual increase. And we are not at all worried at the moment about parking because so many people take alternative forms of transportation. So in addition to a spatial issue, is this a revenue stream issue for people to thinking about neighborhood building? I mean, clearly the design district has had a, a legacy of street parking and other, other, other forms. Well, don't get me started on that. <laughs> um, you know, our philosophy, which is unparalleled to my knowledge, is we charge a fraction of what we could charge for parking because I want everybody to be able to afford to come to the design district. I don't just want an elitist luxury ghetto. And I don't want that to be a consideration. So let's touch briefly on the, you know, the kind of environmental condition. So um, it's the best of times. It's the worst of times, right? I mean, we, we can't make space fast enough. Uh, Miami continues to be a, a very desirable global destination. You're 10 years into this business cycle. And at the same moment, of course, there is um, quite a lot of work being done on the beach side to raise roads, uh, concerns around nuisance flooding, the idea of pumps and pipes and building a new public realm at another level. As somebody that's been invested in building the city over the last several decades, how do you think about those questions? Well, I'm, I'm very concerned, rightfully so. I think that global warming is occurring. I also think that we are contributing to it at the very least. We have such a short existence in places and we don't think in geological time to, to understand it. I mean, the question, which is unresolved, is a city like Miami going to find a way to cope with sea level rise or is Miami going to go away? First of all, we've got to change the way we're acting on the planet. You know, like there's no question about that. And it's so irresponsible of us not to. And it goes to a lot of things, you know, that people don't consider just animals, you know, domesticated animals are a, a huge contributor to it. So that isn't a factory or a car or whether it's a fossil fuel or not. I mean, it's ridiculous that we haven't really developed renewable energy anyway, and that energy is all built in these like very remote plants and then transported where we should have more, much smaller energy creation all around. But, but having said that, the real question for Miami is whether there's going to be a technological solution, because I don't think that if we stop burning fossil fuels and get rid of all the domesticated animals, that that's necessarily going to resolve the problem. And I'm, I'm optimistic about it. I think that, you know, there'll be a solution. And I think that anybody that doesn't get proactive and try to help and make a solution is really foolish. Mm, it's well put. I mean, so much of uh, ecological knowledge and so much of the relationship between ecology and urban design, urban planning has been built on a Malthusian line of thought, right? A kind of zero sum game. And ultimately, of course, as you speak to about domesticated animals and, you know, I, I eat beef, I don't know about you these days. Um, as, if we get out of our cars, if we can even switch to renewable energy in a place like this that has such abundant sunshine and, and other forms of energy, there's still in the global system so much change happening. It will require really adaptation. And in that respect, I, I suppose my observation is that Miami, Miami Beach are not here by products of geology. They're not the result of rational choices. We chose to be here. 
And then, you know, as a, as a Floridian, as somebody that spent some time here and I, cares deeply about the place, I would say, if we're not going to persist in Miami, what down here in the rest of South Florida will, will we save? Well put. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.